Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber and Leslie Picker Kramer has the morning off. Final day of August as we uh, wrap up the best August for stocks in some 30-plus years. S&P's riding a seven-day win streak. Dow has some new components today. Apple and Tesla split, and oil is above 43. Our roadmap begins with the banner month for stocks. Wall Street looking to wrap up its best August, as we said, in 30 years. Plus that Dow shakeup, don't forget, Salesforce, Amgen, and Honeywell are in. ExxonMobil, Pfizer, and Raytheon are out. What's it going to mean for Apple's influence on the blue chip index? And speaking of Apple, two big tech stock splits taking effect today. Both Apple and Tesla rallying ahead of the open. It's going to be a busy week for FedSpeak, and we're starting all of that with Richard Clarida. For that, we're going to turn to our Steve Leisman. Hey, Steve. Hey, uh, Carl, Richard Clarida, the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve, may, uh, being the uh, most senior uh, person since uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell last week, to talk about the new policy statement where the Fed has announced it's averaging inflation. And he says, uh, he's providing some clarity, he says the new policy uh, is a, quote, robust evolution of the Fed's uh, prior 2% target, uh, noting that low unemployment rate by itself will not justify rate hikes under the existing rules. And he notes that the Fed has learned uh, that withdrawing rate hikes too soon prevents the expansion from reaching all communities. Uh, on the issue of uh, further guide, Oyers says that new policy elevates the importance of keeping inflation expectations anchored at 2%. On the issue of policy, he says the Fed is prepared to use its full range of tools. And maybe a little heads up on what's happening in September. Don't know if he means to hint at this, but he says forward guidance and asset purchases have been and are effective sources to support the economy. goes on to say negative policy rates are not attractive for the U.S., and the potential benefits to yield curve targets, quote, may be modest and are not warranted in the current environment. He does say, though, yield curve targets should remain an option. So, Carl, maybe a little heads up on what's happening in September. Don't know if he means to signal that we could get more information on asset purchases, but that's certainly something that's in the market right now or some expectation of it. Carl? Right. So, so characterize, uh, Steve, the degree to which this puts Powell's speech into some finer resolution. You know, uh, it just puts a little clarity on the edges. We're, we're, we're what economists are trying to do is sort of figure out a more mathematical way to approach this, Carl. I'm not sure Clarita does this for us, but we last week have had several interviews, including one on this show, where we had uh, a couple of Fed speakers say, hey, the two and a quarter to two and a half percent is what we mean by a modest uptick in inflation. So and, and we'll see because he's going to sit down with Adam Posen from the Peterson Institute to see if Clarida himself puts that kind of clarity on what on how high an inflation rate is acceptable to them. All right. 
Um, Steve, thanks for that uh, interesting way to kick off the hour. Uh, David and Leslie, uh, David, I mean, we'll watch the banks today once again as uh, KBE showing some interesting technical patterns. But um, two to two and a quarter to two and a half. I mean, as, as some on the street are saying right now, David, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that is right. And as we pointed out on Friday, of course, the banks seem to rally for a very short amount of time, as you say, Carl. Uh, we'll keep an eye on those shares, uh, which have been underperformers, of course, uh, for quite some time, given the S&P's 8.5% move this year, but many of the big banks down 10, 20, even 30%. Uh, Morgan Stanley is sort of the outlier there, which I pointed out many times, Leslie, uh, given E-Trade, uh, deal hasn't closed yet, but is soon going to, and sort of the different components of their business versus some of the others. It also points, by the way, when you mention E-Trade, to the place that the individual investor has in this recent rally, the Wall Street Journal today, uh, with a story about things we've been talking about for months now, the rise of the so-called Robin Hood trader. But it does show in the data in terms of the volume numbers, in terms of just how many, in particular, stocks uh, specifically are being moved by the addition of buying from a cohort that has increased in size rather dramatically over the last six months. Yeah, that's right. They see, a, a, and they cite Larry Tab here, 19.5% of shares traded in the U.S. stock market were from retail investors. That's double the proportion that it was just a decade ago. Uh, so you're really seeing this dramatic rise. And one thing that I thought was really interesting that they pointed out was that a large proportion of that was actually coming from Asia, uh, that traders overseas uh, in especially South Korea were very interested in, in trading, uh, especially as the shutdown endured. Uh, they liked the, the ease at which they could use the app. Similar themes that we've talked about with the Robin Hood traders uh, here stateside, uh, but interesting nonetheless. And, you know, we're seeing some several interesting stories coming out of Asia this morning, Carl, including uh, that <laughs> Warren Buffett is purchasing, you know, five what they call trading companies, more akin to holding companies. Uh, obviously, TikTok continues to be the saga uh, that, you know, just has interesting developments and turns every step of the way. Uh, so that's definitely a, a geography in the world that, that we should be paying attention to uh, today, Carl. Yeah. No, we'll definitely get to the Buffett news and watch Mitsubishi and uh, Sumitomo. Uh, David, as for TikTok, I mean, uh, we got CNBC.com reporting that uh, we expect a deal basically in the next couple of days, right? Where are you on this? Yeah. You know, uh, sometimes as a reporter, you kind of lose some people along the way. And uh, I'm going to rely on our colleagues at CNBC.com here in terms of their reporting. Uh, where they're saying that uh, uh, the bidder has been identified. In other words, we knew it was Oracle and uh, Microsoft in partnership, this kind of strange partnership with Walmart, but Microsoft and Oracle, Oracle, by the way, along with so many of ByteDance's owners, as we've reported, being the two key bids, uh, unclear that there really was a third bid of any significance there. Um, but Carl, this law or this change uh, that came out of China in terms of the export laws, and tightening it specifically to AI uh, and software code, you have to think that that gives any of these buyers pause. And that's because it comes back to this, this specific issue that I've been talking about now for weeks related to the software code itself. I mean, that is what makes TikTok TikTok. It's the AI. Uh, it is the code that you would get for essentially what would be a year. You get to take what, what has been referred to me at least as sort of a, a snapshot of the code, and then you get updates for a year, 
And then you've got to build your own software. You've got to build your own engineering base. If you're Microsoft or if you're Oracle, that is what is, you're going to do. So you get one year, and that's the deadline that I've been told by numerous sources the U.S. government was willing to also uh, stay to. So you get one year for the updates. But if the Chinese, Carl, say, now, you know, that falls under our new export laws and you can't do that, I, I'm not quite sure how as a potential buyer here you get past it. That said, I just don't know because, unfortunately, I'm not getting the information flow that I'd like to be from some of those potential buyers, Carl, to really understand exactly what they are thinking right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, what a curveball again over the weekend, this idea that uh, China would also have to sign off on any sale. So, uh, David, we'll watch it. Obviously, uh, it's a story that has been moving uh, in leaps and bounds over 24-hour uh, news cycles over the past week. Of course, the other big thing, Leslie, is the new construction of the Dow, which Mike Santoli mm -hmm. was talking about just before the top of the hour. And this idea that uh, it's a little more growthy, as Mike said, and will maybe be an effort to keep up with the S&P, which it is lagging in ways that it has not in a very long time. A very important story, especially as Apple uh, undergoes its stock split today, four to one. Uh, that, of course, because uh, the Dow is price adjusted um, and its components operate on a price adjusted basis. Uh, Apple sees its weighting decrease with the stock split. So the entrance of Salesforce, uh, I think the committee that oversees the Dow composition is hoping that that kind of helps the Dow uh, achieve more of that tech weighting uh, that it otherwise would have gotten pre prior to the stock split um, by introducing Salesforce, of course, a pure play uh, cloud company. Uh, but certainly Apple, along with Amazon, Microsoft, com companies that aren't uh, components in the Dow have been key drivers to that, that disparity between uh, the Dow and the S&P, unlike we've seen uh, going back to 1932, the widest gap between the two, uh, eight percentage points, the largest that we've seen in, in any of our lifetimes by far. It'll be interesting to see, uh, David, if that continues and, and whether this new, uh, the new, the three new entrants, Amgen, Honeywell and Salesforce uh, can kind of help narrow that gap moving forward. It seems like a lot of market strategists are, are a bit skeptical whether it will, whether it will be enough uh, to really narrow that gap, uh, at least in the short run. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as I've been saying for years, of course, it is a statistically irrelevant index given its price weighted, although Mike Santoli did come back with a good fact when he showed that long term chart that basically showed <laughs> over time the Dow and the S&P are virtually the same. <laughs> yeah. But as you point out, they can diverge. They can diverge, Carl, for certain periods of time. They've been doing this now. Uh, it is interesting just to see Apple with that uh, with that new price. Remember, you, you got four, as, four times as many shares now as you had previously for the, the uninitiated. So don't worry. It's OK. Uh, but uh, we'll see what the impact is overall in terms of whether the Dow can make some of that up uh, as the components do change there. You can see what's in the Dow right now if you're uh, still interested in that uh, anachronistic index. <laughs> It'll never win your, your love, David. Um, by the way, UNH <laughs> no, is now the big mover and shaker. Uh, UNH is right. the one that'll be uh, the big mover in terms of price weight, so we'll watch that from here on out. Meantime, as for the Tesla split, that brings a whole host of other news, and for that, we'll turn to Phil boat today. Hey, Phil. Hey, Carl. The Tesla shares will start trading on a split-adjusted level today. So instead of seeing it at, what, 21.33, 21.37, what you're seeing is a stock that is now trading somewhere between... $444 and $445. There you see pre-market. It's down just a little bit. So roughly in that 440 range is what you're looking at. 
Compare Tesla versus the S&P 500 since August 11th. Why are we picking August 11th? That's when Tesla said, you know what, we're going to do a five-for-one stock split. And since then, the S&P has had a nice little move higher. But nothing, nothing at all compared to Tesla, which is up 55%. What's Elon Musk been up to? Is he talking about this split adjustment for the shares of Tesla? Oh, no. He's got a lot of other projects on his plate. The most interesting tweet over the weekend is... Uh, somebody asking him if he was going to be in Germany. He said, yes, I'll be in Germany for a meeting with CureVac, which is uh, developing an uh, RNA printer for vaccines and cures. He said that in Giga Berlin. Remember, they are building a factory in Berlin. That's why I'm headed to Germany this week. Conversations with Harvard Epidemiology confirmed that a high-speed RNA printer has potential to be helpful for vaccines and cures in many areas. Further confirmation that Elon Musk is not only thinking about Tesla or SpaceX, He's got his hands in a lot of different areas. One more time, remember, September 22nd is battery day. That's what people are focused on because when it comes to the Tesla's business, that may be the next catalyst for this stock, either higher or lower. Guys, back to you. You know, Phil, we uh, used to give Jack Dorsey a hard time splitting his time between uh, Twitter and Square. Right. Now you got Musk uh, trying to get Battery Day down. This tweet about Curevac. I know you've, you're going to cover this news about the pig with the computer chip in his yeah. brain. I mean, what are yeah. we saying about his focus right now? I, I have never heard anybody say he is a scatterbrain. Now, look, there were a lot of questions when the, you know, go private yeah, you know, that tweet came out at 420. Remember that? That seems so long ago. It almost seems kind of quaint when you discuss it, going private at 420. Um, and there were people who were saying, look, he's, got, he's way too extended. He has his hands in Tesla, in SpaceX, in all these other things. Uh, but after that, I have not heard anybody, anybody at all on Wall Street suggest that Elon Musk is overextended. So I think this is one of those things where you accept him for what he is. If he's going to be interested in working in a particular area or a side project, whether that's the boring company, whether it's Neuralink, he's going to do that. And you just accept that in terms of if you're a shareholder for Tesla. Phil, thank you. I will you take bet. it from here. Phil LeBeau, of course, uh, will be watching those shares of Tesla. Let me just check the market cap. I always like to do that. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got it. Uh... Wait, oh, they haven't adjusted. <laughs> Fact set, adjust your market cap for Tesla. It didn't go, all right, forget it. We'll get back to that later. Coming up, billionaire investor Steve Cohen has entered exclusive negotiations to buy the New York Mets. We'll give you the latest on that story straight ahead. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Well, here's an M&A story very close to my own heart, of course. Uh, the New York Mets are very close to being sold to uh, the billionaire hedge fund a mogul Steve Cohen. Of course, uh, he had previously been in a very close position to purchase the team uh, late last year uh, when things didn't quite get there. Um, this time, he's hoping for more. This is a story we first broke on Friday evening. I'd uh, been following it very closely. There were three bidding groups. 
Uh, A-Rod and J-Lo, of course, got a lot of attention. They had quite a few investors along with them. Uh, Harris Blitzer, Josh Harris, David Blitzer, uh, private equity titans uh, also, who on the, uh, the Devils, uh, who on the 76ers also were uh, amongst the, the uh, um, bidders. Uh, but Mr. Cohen, of course, was thought to always have the financial wherewithal to actually come away with the prize. The question was whether or not he would, in fact, uh, bid to a high enough level to do that. And again, as we told you late on Friday, uh, in fact, he has entered exclusive uh, negotiations. What does that mean? Well, they still got to put the finishing touches on things. And as we said last time, they didn't quite figure it out. Now, last time was a little bit more complex. There was a five-year uh, management agreement that he was entered into with the Wilpon family, which controls the Mets uh, and is the controlling shareholder, obviously, would be the, the main seller here that you're negotiating with. Uh, there was also some dispute over costs that would come along with closing, is my understanding. And so while it may be only a couple of days away, uh, and the hope is that they will sign a definitive agreement within the next couple of days, they aren't quite there. Still to come, of course, for Mr. Cohn as well would be approval from the owners of Major League Baseball. Now, as somebody who had thought at one time about buying and was trying to buy the Dodgers as minority owner of the Mets, uh, there are some who would point to it and say, well, there may be some issues there. You never know. But that would be something of a surprise, at least to most of the people that I speak to, uh, Carl and Leslie. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a strong auction. And it's a legitimate M&A story. Uh, you know, the A-Rod-led deal uh, from uh, people familiar with the situation tell me they were willing to bid as high as $2.3 billion. They had a number of high-profile investors in there. Uh, Mark Laurie, the founder of Jet.com. Uh, you had uh, Vinny Viola. You had, obviously, A-Rod and J-Lo in for as much as $250 million. You had J.P. Morgan's private bank willing to finance to some extent. They did put a statement out uh, late Friday after our report uh, indicating that they were no longer uh, in the pursuing the team and saying that they were obviously very sad in some ways to uh, be in that position. They said that they had commitment letters from creditworthy partners and that consortium uh, and they were ready to provide an exhilarating experience for uh, the fans. But I'll tell you, as a longtime fan, Mr. Cohen most likely is also going to be able to provide a somewhat exhilarating experience given his deep pockets. <laughs> and don't forget, Leslie, as somebody who also follows the hedge fund industry, he has done a great job at repurposing his business along the way, at changing it as he needed to. Uh, to some extent, and uh, has proved to be a great businessman, many would say. Now, we all know, of course, about the problems with the SEC. <laughs> I don't want to overlook that. But uh, nonetheless, here he is still managing many billions that are not his, opened up once again for outside investors. So those of us who are longtime Mets fans are keeping our fingers crossed. Well, we, we talk about comeback you stories know. all the time in the sports world. Steve Cohen is is trying to create a comeback story of his own, as you mentioned. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about the insider trading scandal that, that plagued his prior hedge fund, SAC. Uh, here he is. He's relaunched his firm as .72. You know, he, he had to operate it as a family office and then finally was able to manage outside money as of a few years ago. He's been able to raise the capital when no one said that he could do that, uh, given, you know, certain types of investors' hesitance surrounding, you know, some of the, the scandal uh, and the reputational hit that uh, his prior firm took. Uh, he 
clearly has been able to overcome those challenges. He's been venturing into new areas. He's been doing more on the VC side. He has a quantitative, uh, more kind of algorithmic style trading uh, within his firm now, whereas it used to be more kind of traditional long short equity. So he's definitely evolved. And I think uh, Mets fans like yourself, David, are hoping that he can uh, evolve the team for, for a nice little comeback as well. Maybe it is those deep pockets. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah, well, listen, and it's, uh, by the way, as an owner of the Mets, Carl, you and, and many of these teams, you have to be ready to take on losses. And that's going to be certainly be the case here, particularly with no fans in the, in the uh, seats right now. And the prospect that even when we get to next spring, it's very much unclear exactly what attendance is going to look like in terms of in-person. So you're talking about a, a club that could lose as much as $100 million for this year, perhaps for next year. Those losses will subside, but you've got a payroll. You're going to want to increase it potentially to add some other stars. So um, it's not just what you pay. It's what you're willing to lose when it comes to one of these, one of these teams. Uh, now, the purchases of it, though, is sort of see as an alternative asset class that over time appreciates greatly in value. But you're going to be paying for the privilege, so to speak. Um, He's got plenty of money, though, Carl, at, what, 14, 15 billion. He would be, I think, the wealthiest owner of a Major League Baseball club. Interesting. Well, the David, on a day where the New York Post is leading with uh, another story about the mass exodus out of New York City, it's nice to see one very big player uh, making a bet on the future, certainly, of the vibrancy of New York. Uh, so we'll pay attention to that uh, with your help. In the meantime, a lot of news to get to this morning. Uh, J.P. Morgan withdrawing its price target on GE. Got an upgrade of Beyond Meat. Lots of news regarding the FDA and vaccines. Futures are mixed, and we're back in a moment. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. We're just about five minutes away from the first trading session for Apple and Tesla since their respective stock splits went into effect. Both stocks a bit mixed today. Apple up about 1.2%. Tesla uh, trading a bit lower in the pre-market. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We've been talking about the strength of the equity markets for the month of August, which has really been driven by the central bank liquidity tailwind, better corporate earnings, and then optimism about a vaccine. You got uh, the FT over the weekend arguing or talking to the FDA chief Stephen Hahn, saying that they are willing to fast track a vaccine before phase three trials conclude, if in fact it looks like an emergency use authorization is worth it. And then David uh, uh, Gilead today, the FDA expanding the emergency use of remdesivir. Glaxo today starting an experimental antibody trial, maybe getting results on that before year end. So uh, the optimism crowd as it it pertains to the medical breakthroughs uh, continues to remain intact. Yeah. Um, 
And thankfully, cases have started to trend downward. I think we're at 35,000 yesterday, which is uh, lower, certainly even lower than the seven-day average, which is a good thing uh, in terms of the country overall, uh, Carl. Uh, and yeah, we're, listen, we're, we're keeping a very close eye on uh, the prospects for a vaccine and when we can expect to actually see one approved. You know, I don't know. Does this, Carl, add to what might be concerns amongst certain pop part of the population that it is being rushed and therefore will not be safe? Yeah, I mean, Han addressed that question. You know, are, are, is there, are there signs that it's being pushed by uh, political pressure? On the other hand, Leslie, you know, Fauci long ago said, look, if it looks like you've got a, I won't say magic bullet, but a, a good winner in the barrel, in the chamber, uh, we, should, we should not be afraid to get that out at least to uh, people who can use it the most in the near term. I, I think that's right. And communication from respected officials like Fauci, uh, like Dr. Gottlieb, uh, who have been really leaders uh, on this front, I think is going to be important, especially as the general public assesses whether or not they feel comfortable taking that vaccine. And of course, that is uh, one of the key things that the market has been looking forward to. So if people are super hesitant about taking it, if if en masse, they're uh, not interested in, in any kind of uh, injection and, and are concerned about the health risks and, and, and the, the guidance from the government, that could be a huge uh, headwind to what we've seen in terms of, of the opening of the economy and, and the health crisis in this country, David. Yeah, I mean, uh, I continue to focus on antivirals. We continue as well to focus on the monoclonal antibodies, the things that perhaps would be a bridge to a vaccine as well, or would be there uh, for people who do get sick. Uh, you know, it's still very much unclear, Carl, exactly if we do get a vaccine approved, let's hope before year end, how widely it would be able to be distributed. Manufacturing is moving ahead on so many of these different vaccines, which is important because you want to have some supply, but you are talking about what might be billions of doses eventually that have to be, uh, have to be given. And so, uh, so many other things that come along with that, just in terms of a supply chain for providing a vaccine, uh, who would get it first, how long to herd immunity, so many different questions uh, that are key for so many small and medium-sized businesses in this country, certainly thinking here, of course, of restaurants and the like, uh, that are so reliant and will be even more so soon on people coming inside to dine, particularly as it gets colder here in the Northeast. Yeah, and we'll talk to Jim, of course, later in the week about uh, what's going to happen to restaurants. I did notice this morning, David, that in New Jersey, uh, Governor Murphy says that indoor dining uh, will begin Friday, I think, at 25 percent. Uh, capacity. That's five months after the pandemic began. So that's very good news uh, for the restaurants uh, in New Jersey. We'll see if that translates to areas like Manhattan, where people are still trying to dine outdoors as the weather is getting cooler, uh, right in the middle, essentially, of, uh, of major arteries uh, throughout Manhattan, at least. Um, David, I got to get your take on um, on GE today and uh, J.P. Morgan, Steve Tusa, something we'd talk about with Jim as well if he were here, uh, withdrawing their price target, uh, saying that there's Little equity value, in their words, David, they say not offering specific guidance, but somehow finding enough to say that they'll be free cash flow positive in 2021. Uh, in Tusa's view, uh, the entire earnings curve, forward earnings curve, in their view, he says, will collapse. Yeah, uh, that's pretty straightforward. Um, 
there's no shortage of challenges facing Larry Culp running this company, as we know. Uh, and just to put it in perspective, I mean, we're talking about GE now, the once giant GE, a $57 billion market value company, you know, far less than its one-time competitor, still competitor in, in engines, uh, Honeywell, for example, which is over $100 billion, $111 billion market value. I like to point those out sometimes just to give some people a sense of where things are and where they've come from. But yeah, there's no shortage of challenges here. Um, I think if Jim were here, you know, he might have some questions in terms of Tusa, uh, who we said for some time perhaps hung too long on his negative outlook for the company. Now, that said, nobody expected the pandemic. And certainly he could not have known about that at the time, but it has added enormous challenges, Leslie, for so many businesses, including, of course, ones uh, like GE's, which in part are dependent on customers such as Boeing, which is dependent on the airlines, and we know where all that goes. I don't know the latest traffic numbers year over year, but they are down a lot still in terms of passengers. Oh, absolutely. But how often do you see this kind of humility from the street where they just withdraw the price target altogether and say, you know, we know that there's downside risk here. We don't know how far it can fall. Uh, so we're just going to kind of take a step back and see. And, you know, in some ways, it's it's a response to all of these companies that have uh, have uh, suspended their guidance, uh, giving giving the street little window into what they're expecting for the rest of the year. And it, it really hits at this uncertainty dilemma that people aren't sure, you know, what is in store for the rest of the year for 2021. Uh, you know, we talked about what a vaccine might mean and, and how quickly that could really filter through uh, the population and therefore the economy. Uh, but I think the same is true for, for what's going on with the stock market. And in light of, you know, not having some of this clarity that we're seeing, the markets just continue to go up and up and up. And that's, that's part of why why uh, we're seeing such strong performance in August. Uh, I think a lot of people are now turned to September where the average uh, performance is actually lower. On average, in September, it declines about 1%. Uh, so people are, are perhaps expecting uh, the markets to take a little bit of a pause next month. Um, but again, this is such an unconventional year. Every rule that you've been taught, every little ounce of history that you've learned about the market, you can almost throw it out the window. I mean, I feel like I should retake business school because, you know, stock splits make the stocks go higher. Okay, we didn't learn that. Uh, you know, the <laughs> Fed has, uh, you know, adjusted its mandate. So, um, you know, I think everyone is kind of learning as they go these days, guys. There's no doubt about that. And, and to your point, uh, Leslie, about continued uncertainty going into the fall, that's uh, sort of the dynamic that the journal wrote about over the weekend in that we saw a number of announcements of workforce reductions on Friday uh, from Coke, uh, from Salesforce.com earlier in the week, and from MGM. Granted, uh, MGM's hoping to rehire some of those workers if and when demand rebounds, but I don't know, David, those were uh, some of the best performing names on Friday and one more sign that the street is looking for companies to adjust their operating leverage and to a large degree that's going to involve reducing headcount. You know, it's funny, Carl, because you do hear about it in, the, in conversations I will have, you know, that are, are not for attribution, obviously, with, uh, with leaders of various companies. There is a thought process, I think, that, that goes more or less like this, which is, you know, I, I never experienced, we've never experienced anything like this pandemic. And I realize now that we can do a lot more with less. Uh, and sometimes that also, that doesn't just mean uh, office space. 
it, it includes employees. And we've seen some of the layoffs. We're looking at some of the names right there that, that were announced over the course of last week. Many of them still travel or leisure related, but it's, it's beyond that. Uh, and it's got to be something that people keep in mind as we sort of try to assess the overall economic health right now. Uh, because there are plenty of CEOs, I think, who are going to unfortunately almost take advantage of or use this as an opportunity to say, hey, I don't need quite as large a workforce as I might have once, or as even I may have thought I did, given how productive people are being by not even being in the office um, and still those who are there doing what they need to do. Um, guys, I wanted to do, uh, hit AT&T over the weekend uh, the Wall Street Journal reporting on something that in many ways has sort of been kind of out there or sort of thought that we, we knew was happening. Uh, and in fact, the journal had reported on this very prospect some time back. Uh, but it is the case. AT&T uh, is in uh, talks at this point, I'm told, by people familiar with the situation. It's still fairly early days, uh, but they are in talks with what are largely private equity firms about a potential sale of uh, its direct TV unit. Um, of course, uh, this is a deal that I followed closely when it was announced. We even then had a lot of questions about the rationale behind it, despite what were Randall Stevenson's many reasons, Randall Stevenson, the former CEO of AT&T's many reasons as to why they did the deal. Uh, many thought, well, it, certainly the free cash flow characteristics of the business will help AT&T maintain its dividend. But it is, uh, it is a business that has deteriorated over time and even more so over the last couple of years, even more so over the last few months to some extent. Uh, the diminution of subscribers is unabated uh, and EBITDA as a result has also come down dramatically. When we talked to new CEO John Stanky after the last earnings report not that long ago, uh, I did press him on DirecTV and on whether it was a core asset. He wouldn't come out exactly and say it wasn't, but take a listen to what he did say to sort of get a sense for their thinking. What I clearly believe is that software-based technology platforms are really important for our business moving forward, and they're able to deliver the kind of product that a customer likes, and that's where we're focused on our investment and what we're going to do moving forward. Now, that is not DirecTV, what he's talking about right there. Now, there's always been this prospect, well, could you bring DirecTV and DISH together? Remember, because Charlie Ergen, the man who controls DISH, is really focused on trying to roll out a nationwide 5G wireless service. That's not going to happen here. There's no way, I'm told, that AT&T is going to be negotiating with DISH to potentially combine the companies in some fashion. Uh, perhaps a private equity firm that did step up, if they were able to reach a deal to acquire a DirecTV, would then go and try to negotiate with Mr. Ergen to potentially purchase that company and bring them together uh, within whatever company was, uh, was created by the private equity firm or firms, if they get to it. They are hoping to get something done, at least in terms of sign by the end of the year. We'll see if they're able to. But Carl, in many ways, this story is one we've already told, which is this was a huge deal and it was a great deal if you were a DirecTV shareholder. Uh, Mike White, who we have on many times, uh, should be applauded for the sale number that he got for this business to AT&T at that time. It has deteriorated since then. It does generate still a good amount of free cash flow because, remember, the CapEx requirements are not particularly large. So it does generate a, a lot of the cash does come right through. So it does have that going for it. But it also, unfortunately, has this going for it. And for those of you on the radio listening, my hand is going uh, left to right down. 
David. Yeah, and then, of course, there's Tenant, which uh, did pretty well internationally uh, with a lot of uh, theaters uh, operating at minimum capacity. Rich Gelfand of IMAX on Squawk earlier today. Uh, not too uh, many Dow components in the green this morning. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Yeah, uh, three to two declining to advancing stocks. Although we're up seven straight days, guys. That's the important thing here. We cleared 3,500. We'll see if we can do that. Best August since, what, 1984? right now. I think the key thing is looking at the sectors. Technology is on the upside, but mostly it's because Apple is up today. Most tech stocks are on the downside. I think keep an eye on that. Industrials, consumer discretionary, okay. Energy and banks a little bit weaker overall. Uh, as for the risk to the rally, a lot of hand-wringing over the weekend about the potential concerns out there. September is historically the worst month. Yes, but not in presidential years, folks. Uh, breath has been poor, but not that poor. Stocks are pricey, but they're looking at better earnings potential, and that's the key here. So I wouldn't worry. The, the risks that people are citing right now are true, but I don't find them terribly alarming at the moment. What's really animating the markets is the hope for higher earnings down the road. And if you look here, 2021, the estimates here, this will be the trough year, $130 for the S&P. It was 160 last year. And the hope here is 2021 is going to see back to 165, 166. Uh, and there are people who think that this is way low. Just like the second quarter, the estimates were way wrong. The hope is 2021. For the bulls, the estimates are way wrong. I've talked to people who think we could go towards $200 for that. And that's what's really animating the markets right now. And you can't blame it. Look at the, the news flow has been fairly good. The Fed stimulus has been very active overall. The, uh, the reopening story has been improving. Generally, that's the case. The vaccine is coming, and it's certainly true that the overall fiscal stimulus might be fading, but that's not really moving the markets that much, the concern for that here. As for the Dow, big day with a lot of new additions today. Of course, we had Salesforce, we got uh, Honeywell, we got Amgen. All three of those are up since they've been announced going into the Dow. So even though not a lot of money indexed to the Dow, there is some movement in those particular stocks. As for the Apple stock split, a lot of discussion about whether that matters. I think it does. Now, remember, we all know fundamentally, fundamentally, a stock split doesn't matter for the company at all. But back in the 1990s, remember what happened? A stock split was viewed as a vote of confidence in the company. It was almost like a call from a broker saying, I have a hot IPO. So it mattered a lot for momentum stocks back then. I think it matters for Apple, too. been a lot of options activity around Apple. Somebody still believes that it matters. As for the Dow weightings, a little growthier today. So healthcare has gone from 14 to 18 percent, thanks to Amgen in it. For the, S for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and technology is down a little bit from 27 to 23, but it's got Salesforce in it. So you throw in Amgen and Salesforce, Carl, and you get a little bit more growthier aspect to the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Back to you. Yeah, we'll, work, we'll look to see if that uh, starts to kick in this morning, Bob. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, we'll keep an eye on uh, the markets today. Got a fresh record high on the NASDAQ and the S&P this morning. Also, when we come back, the fight against the coronavirus, a phase two and three study being started for a COVID antibody treatment. We'll talk with the players involved in a moment. Veer Biotechnology and GSK announcing the start of a first-in-human test of a COVID-19 antibody treatment. Our Meg Terrell this morning joins us with some special guests on that. Hey, Meg. Hey, Carl. And those special guests are Dr. Hal Barron, the chief scientific officer of GSK, and Dr. George Skangos, the CEO of Veer. Uh, both of you, thanks for being with us this morning. And Hal, let's start with you uh, to kind of put into context where you see uh, antibody drugs, and particularly the one you're working on, fitting into the landscape of trying to stop this pandemic. 
especially as we hopefully will have vaccines coming on board sometime soon. Well, hi, Meg. Uh, great to be here. You know, the landscape, the way we've seen it, the way we've seen it from the very beginning is that we're going to need multiple shots on goal to provide solutions for COVID. At GSK, we have three major uh, areas of focus. The first is vaccines, as you know, and we're working with Sanofi and other collaborators on vaccines. Uh, what we bring to the table there is a very special adjuvant that will make the vaccines more potent, you know, which could result in a much lower dose, which would allow uh, us to administer the vaccine to many more people or potentially result in a better efficacy. Another approach that we're taking is um, to define a therapeutic antibody to block a protein that we think is involved in the cytokine release syndrome, the so-called overactivation of the immune system that some patients who get COVID experience that can result in respiratory failure or even death. And the third component, which plays into all of this, is to develop a monoclonal antibody against the virus itself to block the virus from causing the problems. And, and just to step back, a monoclonal antibody is what your body makes, hopefully, uh, when you get the virus, or in fact, hopefully what your body does when you get the vaccine. It makes a monoclonal antibody against the virus to prevent it from infecting. And what we're doing with Veer is developing a very special monoclonal antibody, one that was screened from hundreds and hundreds of different monoclonals uh, that, that the Veer scientists were looking at from people who got the coronavirus in the past to look for the very special ones that were very potent at neutralizing. And by bypassing, basically, the bodies need to make these antibodies, we can give them directly to patients to protect them uh, if they have a mild case of, of, of the, the syndrome or potentially even to prevent it. So we're very excited about how potent this antibody is and how it could fit into the landscape from that perspective. George, I don't know if you want to add anything. Well, George, uh, well, how no, I'll ask was... a question of George. You know, George joined us uh, months ago at the beginning of this pandemic, really before it took off in the U.S., to tell us about Veer's approach. And George, I know that you were sort of hunting through um, antibody libraries from people who'd recovered from the original SARS. And I understand that your antibody that you're taking forward here uh, ta attacks both uh, SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2. It could be protective against both of those. So just tell us about how your antibody is differentiated from the front runners at Regeneron and Eli Lilly. Uh, sure, Meg. I think there are several characteristics of our antibody, actually, that, that uh, are potentially differentiable. First, uh, it is isolated from a patient who recovered from SARS. And since it neutralizes both SARS and COVID-2, uh, we believe it binds to an epitope, a, a portion of the virus that is highly conserved and difficult for the virus to change. That suggests that it will be difficult for the virus to mutate and escape uh, this particular antibody. That's borne out now by the uh, tens of thousands of sequences that have been uh, analyzed from COVID and by the difficulty of isolating resistant mutants in the lab. So uh, refractory to the development of resistance is one. Uh, potency is another. It's a potent neutralizing antibody. Neutralization means the ability, blocking the ability of the virus to enter cells and replicate. And thirdly, Antibodies do more than that, and they, some antibodies have the ability to attract cells of the immune system to come in and kill cells that are already infected. And we believe that's a very important part of uh, the efficacy for antibodies, and this particular antibody has a very important uh, and very potent effector function. Uh, additionally, we've extended the half-life of these antibodies so that they can provide protection over a long period of time. So we believe these antibodies have several characteristics that uh, uh, potentially differentiate them. 
Hmm. And George, just to follow up, you know, you're starting this clinical trial. It's first in human now, but you're also calling it a phase two, three, just showing how condensed clinical trials are getting. So if it passes that initial safety phase and 20 participants, you'll expand it to 1,300. Um, how are you anticipating how quickly you'll be able to enroll these studies, particularly as we've now just seen this emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma? How does this all affect your timing plans? Well, of course, the uh, EUA for the plasma is for hospitalized patients, and our trial is being conducted in early uh, COVID patients who are not hospitalized. So we don't expect that to interfere. Uh, I think and, um, uh, enrollment in trials is really de dependent on being in the right place at the right time with the right equipment. We're opening sites not only in the U.S. and Canada, but in Europe and South America. The sites we're opening all have, uh, well, most of them have point of care cap uh, capabilities to test on site and get quick test results. For those sites that don't have that, we're providing them with machines so that they can do that because testing has been one of the major bottlenecks for enrollment. We're enrolling about 30% more sites than we think we need, and so we're doing everything we can to make sure that we enroll uh, quickly. All right, George and Hal, we're going to have to leave it there for now, but we hope you'll come back and keep us posted on all of your progress. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks, Carl, Thank back Meg. over to you. All right, Meg, uh, thanks for that. After some initial highs on the S&P and the NASDAQ, seeing a little bit of selling here as we wrap up the best month for equities since April, the best August in about 30 years. Uh, got VIX above 25 again, Dow's down 142. Welcome back. Did want to get to a deal that we hadn't mentioned yet. It uh, is not that large, but it's an interesting acquirer in Nestle and a very interesting premium that Nestle is paying for the roughly 75, 74 percent of this company that it didn't already own. I'm talking about a company called A-Immune, which, which is commercializing treatments for what they say are potentially life-threatening food allergies. And in fact, uh, already does have one a uh, drug on the market that uh, called Palforza that is the first and only FDA-approved treatment to help reduce the frequency and severity of allergic reactions to peanuts. Uh, and you can see the premium was about 175%. The deal price, $34.50 for a stock that was trading well, well below that. Again, as I've mentioned, they had about they have about at Nestle about 20% in governance, but they had 25.6% economic interest already. So they'll only be buying the rest of it um, for that very large premium, uh, Carl and Leslie, but certainly worth noting and obviously going to help the company continue to try to commercialize other, um, other drugs to treat various food allergies. As I said, they do have one already on the market to try to lessen the severity of uh, allergies to peanuts. Back to you. Yeah, and they said that that, that uh, peanut allergy treatment has sales potential of a billion dollars. That's just that one treatment. Uh, clearly, you know, so many people have peanut allergies. There hasn't really been an effective way to deal with that other than just to avoid peanuts. Uh, so this, this treatment was seen as kind of a breakthrough on that front. Obviously, a, a huge TAM uh, for, for people who suffer from, from allergies to peanuts. Yeah, and welcome news uh, for any parent uh, who has a child who is allergic. Uh, obviously, very dangerous situation, uh, something that is uh, exhausting to monitor all the time. So we'll watch that closely, guys. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 